Netflix takes a short-term hit as the streaming wars heat up, and our guest this week has a stock he believes could be one of the defining companies of the next decade. All that and a lot more coming up right now. This is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, joined by senior analysts Andy Cross and Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, Chris. How are you doing, Chris? We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We've got a deep dive into the video game industry. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with Netflix. Fourth quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected for the streaming giant, and they added more than 8 million subscribers in the quarter. But that growth is a little bit lower than it was a year ago, and shares of Netflix fell more than 20% on Friday. Andy, a few things to get to here, including the fact that Wall Street kind of freaked out over the fact that Netflix made a reference to competing streaming services in their shareholder letter. Yeah, Chris, we've been talking about the competitive landscape with streaming for a while, and clearly Netflix—they're not. They're, I mean, Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos—that you know, they're not idiots, right? So they 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 know the environment. What really got people, I think, um, essentially freaked out, and and I, it was a very drastic reaction. I got to say, um, was with the guidance, Chris. So the quarter was actually pretty good, as you mentioned. They added almost 8.3 million new paid additions. That was a little bit lighter than. Than the estimate at 8.5 million. Revenue was up 16%. Global paid memberships, total global paid memberships at 221.8 million, up almost 9%. Average revenue per member up 7%. Um, they said retention was strong, churn was down, but on the margin, we didn't quite grow the acquisitions as fast as we would have liked to um, based on the large subscriber base. However, Chris, it was the guidance for the first quarter of this year that really got people, I think, spooked because, like I said, that fourth quarter, not so bad. Operating margin was actually a little bit better than what they expected to on the profit line. Um, but it was the it was that guidance, Chris. Um, looking at the guidance going forward and looking at the quarter, um, uh, estimating to add 2.5 million global paid additions for the quarter versus a 5.8 million ad for a forecast. It's below trend compared to 2018 and 2019 um, revenue for the for the quarter expected to be up around 10 percent versus 13 percent estimates. That's the weakest growth since 2012. So, Chris, when you add it all together, Netflix is really now, I think, not in this hyper growth cycle. We've seen the COVID period kind of wane its way through a little bit, as they talked about on the call, and we're starting to see uh, Netflix now in a different environment. And that has really gotten the the markets a little bit concerned with what that might mean for the full year, subscription, memberships, revenue growth, and then ultimately uh, the the profit picture. They will be cash flow positive this year, or at least they expect to be cash flow positive, which is a good sign. But clearly, not nearly as much growth as they've seen over the last couple of years. You know, a lot to unpack here. A lot of this boils down to not just with Netflix, but a lot of the streaming services. Price and content. One reason I never really got behind Netflix was because I never thought they'd be able to work out the cost of content. 
I'm not even sure they have yet, but certainly the stock is up a trillion percent since I passed on it. So it shows you what I know. But you got to be careful here when you assume you have pricing power and you act on that. Netflix just raised prices last week. They bumped their standard plan to $13.99 per month from $13.99 to $15.49. That makes their standard plan more expensive than HBO Max. You got to be careful here because there's a lot of folks, whether it's Disney Plus, Apple TV, Paramount, Peacock, we can keep on going down the list. At some point, people say the content's not worth it to me. Netflix does have the content still. It's still in high in demand. Six of the top most searched globally uh, were on Netflix in 2021. Squid Game among them. I don't think I've seen any of the top 10 most searched shows. So again, take what I say with a grain of salt. But uh, the content is, is good there, but you got to be careful on the pricing side. Yeah, Andy, uh, with respect to the pricing, it really seems for consumers there are two tiers now. You've got HBO Max and Netflix around $15 a month. You've got Apple, Peacock, Disney Plus, they're all single digits, less than $10 a month. Well, let's not forget, this is Netflix's game. Squid Game, game, get it? How I did there, guys. So this is this is all Netflix does. I mean, Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, even HBO Max. You know, they're 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 all they have multiple layers to their businesses. This is all Netflix does, and it's one reason why I think they've been able to spend that amount of capital on their uh, acquisition, acquiring content, and so much on content, including now gaming. Chris, they started their gaming uh, little little tiny gaming platform in November. So, but if you think. Think about Squid Game, 1.65 billion hours within the first four weeks. Bridgerton, 625 million hours. Witcher, 484 million hours. Red Notice, 363 million hours. So they, as, as Ron mentioned, they have the content. They spend it. I think they've been very effective with it. I think they do have that little pricing power, Chris. You do mention like it is Netflix and HBO Max are kind of there, um, and it is remains to be seen whether members and subscribers will continue to pay up for it. But at least the churn number continues to be very impressive, and I think that's a very good sticking point for investors to lock onto as they think about what the growth prospects, and importantly, what the profit and cash flow prospects for for Netflix look like over the next year or so. I think it's, it's also interesting to note that a lot of Netflix's growth seems to be now concentrated overseas in Asia and Europe, with America and Canada being somewhat more of a mature market. But coming up on the outside is Disney, which has recently formed a new international content group to expand its pipeline of content across international markets. They're looking to double the number of countries where Disney Plus is available by fiscal 2023. They've already invested in uh, creation of content, 340 titles already in various stages of development. So, um, as we started this conversation, competition is, is going to be a big part of Netflix's future. Yeah, and that line uh, that they had in in the release in the call, while while this added competition may be affecting our marginal growth some, we continue to grow in every country and region in which these new streaming alternatives have launched. Now, now, Ron, to your point, there there there's global competition. Ninety percent of the new additions come from outside the U.S. and Canada for Netflix, and that marginal growth, Chris, I think, is what what many of us are locking onto because that could be the difference really on the profit cur- on the profit curve and the expectation. But also, this was a this was a 
big analyst kind of game. Like this was a big miss from them. Lots of conversations about how they missed this much. And, and, you know, when you look at the history of Netflix, yes, in various points, they have been able to, they have missed along their estimates this amount in the past year or so, been very volatile with all the COVID announcements. But, but over time, they can consistently grow and return and provide that content and the experience. And that experience is very valuable for the members, I think, is a winning strategy for Netflix going forward. Microsoft is making its biggest acquisition ever, buying Activision Blizzard for just under $70 billion in cash. Assuming regulators don't derail the deal, it is expected to close next year. And signals, Ron, among other things, Microsoft's ambitions, both for gaming and the metaverse. For sure. Now, I will fully admit that I didn't get the 2016 LinkedIn acquisition. I'm not even sure I still get it. Uh, but this one, I get. This one, I think, makes good sense. $69 billion all-cash deal. Activision had been down about 40% from its 52-week high as it dealt with sexual harassment and misconduct allegations. Microsoft clearly taking advantage of that price weakness to, as you said, make its largest acquisition ever. CEO Bobby Kotick, who uh, who has been under pressure to resign will remain CEO for the time being, but I wouldn't be surprised if that didn't last much longer after the deal closes. Activision as a company will report to Microsoft Xbox head Phil Spencer. Um, interestingly, shares are trading well below the $95 acquisition price due to, as you mentioned, antitrust concerns. I do predict this deal will ultimately go through, though. Um, interesting to note, Microsoft's current fortunes, or I say current, over the last several years, have really been tied to its B2B business, its business-to-business business. Specifically, its transformation under Satya Nadella into a cloud company. But it's also made investments in its consumer Xbox gaming business, which is a smaller business as, as when you look at the whole of, of their revenue. Um, they bought Minecraft Maker uh, in 2014, the maker of Minecraft. They bought the parent company of Doom and Fallout in uh, 2021. So this acquisition will be a big help uh, to Microsoft's plan to turn its Game Pass subscription service into what they're going to call the Netflix of gaming, or what analysts are calling the Netflix of gaming. Once the acquisition closes, Microsoft said it would be the third largest game company by sales with 30 game studios. It'll include powerhouse franchises like Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, and my, I guess, favorite Candy Crush. I never understood that one either, to be honest. Um, but listen, you want to talk about kind of big battles, big competition out there. This acquisition is also a shot across the bow to Facebook as the metaverse, which is currently focused largely on gaming, at least right now, that really will start to take shape. So this is an interesting move from that perspective. Shares of Sony also weak as the acquisition is seen as a potential threat to its PlayStation business. Lastly, I'll say 15% upside to the acquisition price, with the main risk being the Justice Department, Justice Department kills the deal. I personally would take those odds. 15% upside looks good to me. Uh, yeah, Andy, I don't think Ron was alone in 2016 at scratching his head on uh, Microsoft buying LinkedIn for $26 billion. Uh, but Nadella and his team made that work. 
um, mm -hmm. and that business is thriving underneath Microsoft. You have to like the prospects for uh, Microsoft's gaming division over the next five, 10 years. Well, I think what's really interesting is because gaming is becoming full on cloud. So it's really pushing to the cloud, and Ron kicked it off and teed it up very well with uh, Satya Nadella's and his team's move to the cloud and the importance of the cloud. Um, even LinkedIn, that, that acquisition, that is very cloud-based when you just think about distributed um, intelligence across various different data points that they have and collecting more and more data. So I think the cloud initiative, this, this does really tie into that. Uh, yes, the, the there certainly will be antitrust concerns, and they're going to maybe have as much as up to 15% of the total market, as Ron uh, alluded to and talked about. With the with when you look at Microsoft's Xbox, the Game Pass subscription service, they're tying together. So, so the cloud push, I think, this continues to strengthen Microsoft's goal to really be distributed leader in cloud computing in lots of different ways beyond just B2B. On Thursday, shares of Peloton fell 25% on reports the company was halting production of its bikes and treadmills due to lack of demand. The stock regained some of that loss on Friday after Peloton CEO John Foley said the company is looking to right-size production levels and consider layoffs. Uh, Ron, you have to think that between the prospect of layoffs and the way this stock has fallen over the past six months, morale at Peloton has got to be low. Absolutely. I mean, this started as a leaked memo, and uh, supposedly they have found out who the, the leaker is and, and are taking action there. But the company was forced to come out and, and address um, what were really rumors up until they came out to, to talk about the second quarter and the business in general. Listen, the business pulled forward so much demand as a result of the pandemic. And and, and it's a miss from their perspective on, on how much that was going to decline once, once the pandemic started to fade. Um, so, yes, I do believe that a lot of the information released in the memo is likely to happen. They're going to temporarily halt production, both the bikes and the tread treadmill. Um, and they do probably have thousands of cycles and treadmills sitting in warehouses because the demand just isn't there. Second quarter results, you know, they were able to reiterate some guidance to kind of, I think, calm the markets down. That's why I think we see a little bit of rebound. Uh, but they said they don't expect to be EBITDA positive until fiscal 2023. I think layoffs are on the table. Peloton's working with McKinsey and company to look for opportunities to cut costs. And again, those could include layoffs store closures um, and some pulling back. Price is a big aspect here. Those bikes are pretty expensive. The subscription monthly uh, cost is pretty expensive. So Peloton has some work to do to right-size this business. After the break, we've got the latest on airlines, consumer goods, and more. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Andy Cross and Ron Gross. Two major airlines out with fourth quarter results this week. American and United Airlines both wrapping up their fiscal years with a loss and shares of both down this week. Though, Andy, United CEO Scott Kirby says he is optimistic about the spring and summer. And I know airlines historically have not been the greatest investments, but when you think about how they tie into so many different industries like travel, hotels, restaurants, I really hope Kirby's right. Both United and American are, are fairly optimistic about what they're seeing. They're starting to see their capacity, of course, continues to, 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 to not be where it is. 
for, for United specifically, capacity was down 23% versus the fourth quarter of 2019. They compare against 2019 because 2020 was all wacky with, with COVID. Operating revenues down 25%. Available seat miles down 3%, so a little bit better. Costs continue to increase. That was up 11% on the seat mile basis versus 2019. Cargo for both companies continues to be a big driver and a big win. The cargo for United is now 10% of the revenues, up from 3% in 2019, so very impressive. But like you said, the bookings and cancellation, Kirby said, starting to return back to normal. Biz demand still not so great, but uh, but improving. Um, they expect capacity to be down only 16 to 18%, operating revenue to be down only 20 to 25% in the first quarter, and um, available seat miles to be, to, to, to be attractive too. So they expect to end 2022 with the uh, available seat miles minus the fuel cost to be about at the run rate of 2019. So you are seeing this optimism from, from United Airlines. You're seeing the, the new CEO at American Airlines, um, Robert Issam is coming in, stepping over, taking over in March from Doug Parker. Um, that's the largest uh, airline they have in, in the world. Their cargo revenues were up uh, attractive as well, now 30% higher than the previous quarterly record. Capacity was down only 13%. Leisure travel is approaching 100% recovery. So both these companies are starting to see the winds of the, the COVID challenges starting to, 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 to dissipate, and they're starting to see the travel come back. Business travel continues to be the one that's still uncertain, but there's some glimmer of hopes in, 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 in the forecast here. Shares of Procter & Gamble up this week after second quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. More noteworthy than the results is the fact that for the second quarter in the row, P&G is raising prices across a range of items from personal health care products to Tide detergent. Ron, we talk about pricing power, and uh, look, this is a Staples company. You don't automatically assume they have it, but they're flexing it. Yeah, you nailed it, Chris. That's that's the story here. The stock's trading basically at its all-time high. Strong business and pricing power allowing it to deal with higher costs across the board that have really been taking a whack at margins and will continue to. But at least their ability to raise prices mitigates that. For the quarter, sales up 6%, driven by a 3% increase in shipment volumes, but 3 percentage points increase due to pricing. And again, that helped offset commodity and freight increases. A CEO said the company has announced price increases in all of its product categories. Effective February 28th, the company will increase prices on the balance of its fabric care portfolio, including Tide, Gain, Downy, Bounce, all your favorites. Um, so, again, they have the ability to raise prices. It'll be remain to be seen if people turn to alternatives once those pricing hikes kick in, but I have a feeling they're going to they're gonna make it through this. For the quarter, their healthcare segment was the strongest with an 8% sales increase. Beauty came in the weakest with a 2% increase. Uh, they raised their revenue outlook for fiscal 22, but they only confirmed their earnings guidance of a 3 to 6% increase. And that's because the guidance included $2.8 billion of after-tax headwinds due to these higher costs. But the company is doing what they need to do, and it remains a strong consumer goods company. All right, guys, we'll see you a little bit later in the show. Up next, Aaron Bush weighs in on the ripple effects in the video game industry after Microsoft's big deal as well as a couple of smaller companies investors should keep their eyes on. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. The dealer says, alone in the dark, 
Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me is Aaron Bush, advisor here at The Motley Fool. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Chris. I don't know anyone who studies the video game industry like you do. Earlier in the show, we had talked about Microsoft buying Activision Blizzard. What does this do to the industry landscape? Uh, there's been talk this week of uh, smaller players in the industry, independent game creators. If you're one of them, are you excited by the growth prospects for the entire industry? Are you terrified by the behemoth that is Microsoft, or is it something in between? Yeah, you're definitely thinking hard about what it means for yourself. But let's zoom out for a moment really quickly. So, 2022 was really destined to accelerate the video game industry's consolidation that we saw pick up and break records last year. A couple of weeks ago, Take-Two acquired Zynga for about $12 billion. That was the largest video game acquisition ever. And Microsoft announcing the acquisition of Activision Blizzard for about $70 billion just immediately shatters that record and hyper-accelerates consolidation. And there there are a couple big picture reasons why that acceleration of consolidation is happening that point toward how deals like this one are changing the industry landscape and are making you know all of the companies figure out their place and its future. So first at a high level we're seeing the increasing dominance of ecosystems. So basically instead of game publishers like Activision or EA being the top dogs like they were over the past couple decades, the big players going forward really are those who own multiple pieces of the value chain in one place. They're owning the hardware, the storefronts, the developer tools, the cloud infrastructure, lots of content, etc. So when it comes to Activision and Microsoft, Activision is really helping Xbox bolster a key component of its broader ecosystem that's going to be harder for others to compete against unless they also bolster theirs. Uh, the second, you know, bigger and more centralized ecosystems lead to the emergence of new business models, namely subscriptions. And like we've seen in video, where there's a flywheel between investing in content and scaling subscribers, I think we're going to see a similar trend happen in gaming. And so when a company like Xbox with its Game Pass subscription or PlayStation um, is able to bring loads of IP under a single subscription or even a couple tiers of subscriptions, um, you know, it immediately becomes more competitive, and that competition really drives even more heightened consolidation. And this is something that the big platforms can do much more successfully than independent publishers, which have much smaller libraries. So, between emerging multi-pronged ecosystems and shifting business models that lend themselves to consolidation, um, a deal like Microsoft buying Activision makes sense, and it's a pretty huge deal for the industry. And so, I really think it's sort of a shot heard around the world that these ecosystems are stepping up in a huge way, and that consolidation is going to accelerate. If I'm an independent creator or a relatively small business, I'm not necessarily scared. There's still many ways to win, many ways to sell games. But at minimum, I'd be figuring out how to better interface with these increasingly giant ecosystems, and perhaps even be thinking about how my business would get consolidated into a larger player as well. So we almost definitely won't see a deal surpass you know, this one. This one was massive, and very, very few gaming companies are even even this big, um, but we definitely will see increased consolidation in the console PC realm, but also in mobile too. If it's a shot heard around the world in video gaming, it's also seen as Microsoft increasing their shot 
at uh, owning a corner of the metaverse, uh, for lack of a better term. Um, how soon do you see gaming uh, fitting into the metaverse? I think anyone who really thinks about it, there are obvious applications there. Is that going to be sort of the first, um, the first significant business industry within the metaverse? Well, I think the metaverse is still very much a buzzword that if you put, you know, someone like Mark Zuckerberg and Satya Nadella in the same room, they're probably not going to agree on what it means or what it's supposed to be. So I think we have to keep that in mind. But really when I think about the metaverse, it really is about an evolution of a more immersive internet and you know, based on that oversimplified definition, gaming has been that for a long time. And as it's grown uh, and become more complex and more users are participating in these worlds, um, it certainly certainly fits the bill and being a component of what the metaverse will entail. Gaming is not the metaverse, but I think it's going to be a subsection of it. And when it comes to where a lot of the innovation is going to be, improving technology, you know, testing new business models, I do think that gaming is going to be a place where that happens. Whether or not, you know, uh, Microsoft and Xbox are really going to be pioneers for what the future of the so-called metaverse is going to be. Um, that's really to be seen. I, th I think it's just going to be something that the entire world, all of these companies together, push forward together. And it's not going to be owned by a single company or a handful of companies, but it certainly is an exciting trend. All right, let's move away from Microsoft for a minute. What's a, a business in the gaming industry that uh, particularly excites you at the moment and why? Yeah, so I am regularly impressed with Roblox, uh, ticker RBLX, uh, which is a user-generated content platform that has scaled tremendously over the past couple of years. And I think that Roblox could be one of the defining consumer companies of the 2020s. Um, so Roblox has really taken off with kids, first and foremost, but I'm incredibly impressed with how the company has maintained its top dog status, how we've seen tremendous growth in developer interests on the platform, how it's been working to age up the platform and expand around the world, how it's been involving big brands, uh, and how it's heavily reinvesting to improve its platform. There are other UGC platforms out there, other virtual worlds out there, but I think that people underestimate how much of a lead Roblox has. Roblox's scale uh, allows it to reinvest in both creators and R&D in a way that other smaller contenders simply can't match. And as these reinvestments build, I think that the lead over others is also going to compound. So I'm, I'm really excited to see where a company like Roblox is five to 10 years from now. I imagine it's going to be both much more important as a platform and its effect on culture in the world than it is today. And if it can pull that off, it's almost definitely going to be a much larger business too. Last thing, and then I'll let you go. Um, and this can be a CEO, this could be a game developer, a trend, a company. Um, what is something in the industry right now that you think is not really getting as much attention as it probably deserves? Um, as as you indicated, you look at the deals earlier this month, uh, that's taking up a lot of the oxygen. Uh, what's something that should be getting more attention? So I have my eye on the emergence of blockchain games. 
at their core, these games are pioneering a movement where players actually own the assets in the game that they play with. And sometimes these games have a native cryptocurrency or two that facilitates a more open in-game economy than traditional games do. So for example, you could play a card game where you actually own and can therefore trade the cards in your collection. Um, you know for essentially real money, or you could play a big open world game where your character's armor and weapons, maybe even the character itself, is yours. So if you put 100 hours into a game and win a lot, you might be able to actually benefit financially from playing. Uh, there's a lot of skepticism around this trend, I'll admit, especially around how to make games that are both fun and financialized. And many games, most games, do not need blockchains at all. Uh, but I also see pretty tremendous experimentation, game design innovation, and a massive flow of talent and capital to these new studios. And I think it's going to take a couple of years to really get going. Uh, but in the same way that mobile gaming brought a whole new group of players and revenue streams to the gaming industry over the past decade, and was a tremendous source of growth for the industry. I suspect that this movement will have a similar effect in the next decade. I think that blockchain games, more than any other segment of the gaming industry, are going to push the boundaries of the ecosystem in the coming few years. And this isn't really a stock market play, but a lot of these assets are still going to be traded publicly, and many already are. So I think you know, it'll be, at minimum, a fun movement to watch, but potentially also be a lucrative one. Aaron Bush, always great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Coming up after the break, Andy Cross and Ron Gross return with a couple of stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. All the games people play now Well, every night and every day now Well, they're meaning what they say now Never say what they mean You know they wallow every hours Well, in their hybrid town As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Andy Cross and Ron Gross. Our new email address is podcasts at fool.com. Drop us a note if you have questions or feedback on the show. As I have said in the past, if there's something we could be doing better, please tell us. But if you like the show, please tell others. <laughs> tell a friend. Post a review on your favorite podcast app. Uh, you know, if you like the show, please spread the word and help us out. We appreciate that. A couple of stories before we get to radar stocks, guys. Amazon announced it is opening its first ever bricks and mortar clothing store later this year. Named Amazon Style, the store will be located in the greater Los Angeles area and offer fashion brands that the company says customers are familiar with. Andy, you bullish on this idea? I actually am, Chris. I think it's really interesting, Ron. This is basically the metaverse in person here for your shopping <laughs> experience. You can use the app to scan a QR code to select clothing that is displayed. So again, it's all through the Amazon app. So right there, they have you in there. Uh, a sales associate will then bring them to your dressing room or robots will bring them probably, if not now, maybe at some time in the very near future. What's pretty cool is that inside the private dressing rooms, and there's a bunch of them from what, you can, from what I can tell, the, um, there Amazon provides these customized suggestions for you um, tailored to what they know about you, tailored to where your shopping experience is right there 
in a touch tone, a touch screen. You can select, you can rate, you can you can say I want this, I don't want this, I like this, I don't like this. They have it all there. So really, it's bringing the physical and the virtual together in a shopping experience. Amazon Style is built around personalization. Is what they say are machine learning algorithms produce tailored real-time recommendations for each customer as they shop. So pretty interesting in how Amazon is, is really infusing their cloud experiences, their distribution, their, uh, their consumer app, and the shopping experience that many of us are, are looking for. Yeah, I, I chuckled at first, but then when I dug in a little bit, I was like, "Huh, that's kind of kind of neat." One thing I was unclear: of, it appears to me you don't actually leave with the clothes; you order them online once you decide what you want. If I'm right about that, that's a little weird to me. I like to, I don't know. The, the, it's I think like, it's both. I think okay. I think I think I think you can do both. From, from you know, from what I can tell, what I like about it is it makes those dressing rooms that are bland and stale. <laughs> And very lonely, if not intimidating, it actually makes them engaging and fun. If any of our listeners in the Southern California area want to do a little boots on the ground research later this year, uh, drop us a note. Let us know how that goes. This week at the RV Super Show in Florida, Winnebago unveiled its electric RV camper. Not only does it provide power to run appliances inside the vehicle, but the battery also enables the vehicle to travel a range of up to, wait for it, 125 miles. And Ron, I applaud the effort here, but I think if you're driving the highways and byways of America, aren't you looking to put more than 125 miles in in a given day? Clearly, yes. And I think this ERV Right now, it's merely a concept, and Winnebago says that as battery technology evolves, there's a potential for additional range. I would certainly hope so, because I don't think 125 miles is, is getting anyone too excited. If you look at it, it looks like a large minivan to me, not really an RV, but I'm not an RV expert. But it has a bed, a kitchenette, and a wet bath with a shower, which I don't know, kind of gave me the skeevies a little bit. But I guess you know, if it was bigger, maybe it wouldn't it wouldn't freak me out that much. Uh, it could charge in forty five minutes, supposedly using high speed public charging. We'll see. This is this is the infancy, I think, of our ERVs, and we'll see how they evolve. Look, at least if you're stuck out in the woods someplace, you at least with your when your battery dies, at least you have the amenities to take care of yourself for a couple <laughs> days in the RV. <laughs> So, on that note, do you guys think that charging stations are going to start to be a new amenity that hotels, Airbnbs, et cetera, start to push from a marketing standpoint as more people are going electric with their vehicles, that hotels and, and motels are saying, hey, we've got charging stations. You know, it's going to come in handy, particularly if my Winnebago uh, EV is, is only going to get me 120 miles. Yeah, and Pilot J, too. Right? Like, like all those, all those, those along the highway will be, it's going to be critical. Sorry, Ron. I do think you'll start seeing hotels, for example, start adding that as amenities, but they're not going to take the hit to margins. Nothing's for free. You're going to see a slight uptick in the cost of your room, and that will include the ability to charge your car. Hey, your Tesla might be nice and stylish and sleek and all that. It doesn't have a bed in it, right? <laughs> your Tesla doesn't have a kitchenette in it, does it? Not yet. 
All right. If you're just starting out investing or you know someone who's looking to get started, we have a free investing starter kit. It covers everything from how to set up a brokerage account to 401ks to buying your first stock. And it includes 15 stocks and five ETFs that are selected by our investing team. And it's free. Just go to fool.com slash starter kit. That's fool.com slash starter kit. All right. Let's go to our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd. He's going to hit you with a question on your radar stock. Andy Cross, you're up first this week. What are you looking at? Fellas, I'm looking at RH, symbol RH. It's the former restoration hardware founded store founded in 1979, provides high-end luxury housewares, operates 68 galleries, 14 waterworks stores across the U.S. and sells online through RH.com and a few other different sites. Uh, market cap of $8.7 billion, stock at four, about $400. Is at a 52-week low? Um, growth is very attractive, 19% last quarter. It's really re- re- redesigned itself over the years. CEO Gary Friedman is the former COO of Williams Sonoma. Is serving this massively large and very fragmented home furnishing businesses. Excellent operating margins, north of 20%, growing 15 to 20% per year. Buys back a lot of stock at various points. EPS of around $22. That could probably grow, I think, 15% a year or so. Stock's not very expensive at about 15 times for a pretty high quality business. Dan. Dan, question about RH. How big can the market for RH actually be, Andy? Every I'm a homeowner. Every time I look in their catalog, I look at those prices and I laugh out loud. <laughs> yeah. So high. And by the way, those catalogs are massively thick, aren't they? Yes. It it's a very large market when you, especially when you think about the housing market and the evolving home market um, that the, we're seeing in the U.S. So it's a pretty large market, and people are looking for different expressions to showcase their furniture, and RH is serving it. Brian Gross, what are you looking at? I'm going to start the year off by circling back to the gene therapy space I talk about from time to time on the show. And the, these stocks have been absolutely crushed alongside other innovative tech stocks that are, let us call, pre-profitability. Uh, and today I'm going to focus on Intellia, N-T-L-A, down 56% from its 52-week high. I could easily talk about Editas off 70%, CRISPR Therapeutics off 65%, and many others. First off, I, I think I should note, I don't think these stocks should have really ever achieved those highs. The stocks got ahead of the actual progress of the companies based on an understandable excitement from investors that gene therapy could potentially change the face of medicine. But that world-altering change isn't going to happen tomorrow, and we honestly don't even know if the CRISPR-Cas9 technology is going to be the silver bullet, so buyer beware. But back to Intellia, made history last summer when it became the first biotech company to successfully edit DNA inside the human body. Um, they've got a strong balance sheet, $1.1 billion in cash. That's essential for an early-stage biotech company that is not profitable. Again, these investments, not for those that are risk-averse. Buy a bundle, buy an ETF, diversify your risk. Dan, question about Intellia? Maybe not about Intellia, but I just want to congratulate old Spin Doctor Ron over here in coining the phrase "pre-profitable." But Ron, Ron, you're not fooling me. I know what "pre-profitable" means. I know it means not 
profitable. <laughs> not, not profitable yet. Some of these companies are actually profitable if you look at their, their income statement because they receive big milestone payments from partners. For example, Intellia has Regeneron as a partner. CRISPR has Vertex. Um, but that's not real profitability. That's sustainable, in my opinion. So, as analysts, we've got to be honest there. For profits, you got to go to Homewares, Dan. you got to go to Homewares. <laughs> what do you want to add to your watch list, Dan? I think I'm going to RH, Chris. I, the, uh, the appeal of a $7,000 couch just won't go away. <laughs> Andy Cross, Ron Gross, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money Radio Show. The show's mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. We'll see you next week.